Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 63, The New York Stock Exchange. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City, on the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And this week we're going to pull something from the headlines of the newspapers, and we are going to do a history, or a version of the history, of the New York Stock Exchange. If you're listening to us in real time, that is, downloading a new episode every week, you understand that this is a very timely episode. If, if not, if you're listening to this somewhere out in the future, well, we're all happy that this moment has passed. <laughs> Hopefully it has. Um, and just not to scare you, I mean, if we were truly doing a history of the New York Stock Exchange, well, that would be a history of the U.S. financial system from its birth to present day. And that's not what we're intending on doing. We couldn't even try that. I think that would be a disaster. And it, let's face facts. It's probably not what most of our listeners want to hear either. I mean, we want to talk about a history of how the stock market came to be in New York City, a history of Wall Street and the building that it's in today. And yeah, actually the series of buildings that it's been in, because uh, throughout the 19th century, it's had a very auspicious start and went through a few more buildings until it finally got to the one that everybody knows today. So we'll tell you about that. A lot of great little anecdotes, things you may not have known about the stock market and Wall Street in general. And a few stories about panics that have come our way and have been resolved just fine. Thank you. So fingers crossed. And join us as we take stock in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. All right, Greg. Well, before we roll out the ticker tape and take a look at the history of the stock exchange, we do just have one little item of business to clear up with our listeners. And that is that maybe you've noticed, dear listener, that a couple of the episodes were out of order in the past few weeks. We had our own little crash, if you will, but on purpose. On purpose because we've had to switch servers uh, to a new host. And you may also notice that the sound of this episode is better than previous episodes. And that's all because of switching over to this new service. Our back episodes aren't up yet. We are endeavoring to get those up as soon as possible. So stay tuned for those. And thanks for your patience. Now, now, on to <laughs> episode 63. Well, let me, let, me, let me get it started here, Tom. Let me tell you where it is, what goes on there, what happens at the New York Stock Let's Exchange. Situate us. The New York Stock Exchange is that beautiful classical-looking building that is on, it's actually facing Broad Street, although mm-hmm. the mailing address is on Wall Street. Since 9-11, its most defining characteristic, if you were to approach it, is that gigantic American flag. 
The New York Stock Exchange is the center of financial transactions in the United States. Wall Street has basically centered itself around it, has basically created the financial district. Even in this day of, of now online and digital transactions, it's still a really wild scene. Have you ever been down there? Have you, have you even looked at the trading floor? It's, it's crazy. I stood up on the balcony and looked down. You, uh, you know, it, it begins every morning with the ringing of that trading floor bell, you know, ding, 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 ding. Um, they usually have some organization or an actress ringing it or something. It was um, it was actually you know in 1870 when they started Shirley MacLaine, Shirley MacLaine, you know Scar- Scarlett Johansson. Back in 1870, they actually use a Chinese gong. So that's when the traders hit the floor. They spend the entire day in these loud, hectic negotiations. If you're buying or selling particular stocks, you go to a particular post on the floor where there a broker acts as an auctioneer and sort of officiates the proceedings in the buying and selling. So it's still done with real people buying and selling from other real people? There are. And believe it or not, have you ever wondered who they were? Like who gets invited to do this? Right. The guys in the blue coats? It's the 1,366 seats, as they call them. They are 1,366 places or seats, even though, of course, they never really sit. But back in the day, they used to sit. These are the only people that are allowed to trade in this direct, visceral way. This has been just an outstanding standing tradition. It used to be 50 or 60 seats, and then over the ages they added some, and then they finally froze it at this number, which I think is a very strange number to freeze it at. These seats have over the years gone for millions of dollars for, for people to, you know, to get someone, a, a broker, on the, on the trading floor. So you have a direct connection, so you can make these transactions as fast and mm. speedy as possible. Um, the seats, by the way, are now they're licensed out on these one-year licenses, so it's not quite like that anymore. And in fact, in 2007, traders now have this hybrid option, which is they can either place orders online or they can still go through this old-fashioned way of doing it. So you actually have a person involved. So, right. And the benefit of being down on the floor is that what you just have a closer connection to the stock that's being bought and sold? Well, it's, you know, like sometimes you just want a good old-fashioned human, you know, you want to talk to a human being on the other line, so to speak. I feel, right. I think it does have something to do with that. And, and they can make, they can make sort of quicker, more human decisions if things mm-hmm. happen, something that a computer cannot do. So today is a very complex situation with all this technology married with all of these old, interesting traditions that have, you know, that have been with this for hundreds of years and started back in the colonial era, basically the beginning of New York as, a, as an American city. Even before that, right? And we talked, if you'll recall, in an earlier podcast about the beginning of Wall Street. Oh, sure. And in 1653, an actual wall was erected, a 12-foot wall that was built out of wood, and it was erected along the upper border of what was New Amsterdam at, Mm -hmm. at that time, the colony, in order to protect the colonists from invading Indians and angry Brits from other colonies. Yeah, well, the other people from other colonies, right? Right. The land was on the inside at a higher elevation than on the other side of the wall so that the colonists could race up and look over the wall. But of course, the people on the other side couldn't. They Mm -hmm. were at a disadvantage. (laughs) Well, they never really had to use this for any practical purpose or defense purpose. The British just took over. Right, right. (laughs) They walked through the wall. The other way, right. 20 years afterwards, the street itself was laid where the old fortification was. So the the street dates back to the 1670s. Let's jump forward to 1790, shall 1790. we? 1790. Okay, so now the British are gone. The Brits are out. It's New York, no longer New Amsterdam. And there are 34,000 people who live in the city, uh, mostly south of what is today Canal Street. So 
the city was very busy. The port was very busy. Um, it, it would become, actually, just a couple years later, the young nation's busiest port. So you can imagine all the things coming and going in. Crazy traffic in, at, in the harbor, right. Right, and down there on that Wall Street, you have Columbia College, the new college, just mm-hmm. a newly named college, rather, just right. a couple blocks away. Trinity Church, major church at the corner, the beginning of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. The old City Hall and the Federal Hall building. You know, you have animals walking around being led off to slaughter, and you have what was called the Coffee House Wharf, which was just at the most eastern end of Wall Street, which is where you'd have the unloading and loading of all of these exotic spices and coffee and teas and things like that, and a nice fragrant atmosphere. So that's, <laughs> that is sort of setting the scene for where we are and the period because we're really talking right now about the 1790s and the beginning of the actual trading that's where things kind of start in new york so but around this particular area so yes i'm getting the i'm getting the idea of boats unloading their cargo on one end of wall street and businesses are beginning to pop up up and down wall street that might have something to do with some of this shipping and trading right and this is the period just following the Revolutionary War. There are a lot of debts that need to be repaid on the part of states, and the states are now bound together as a new nation. So who's going to pay off these debts? You're, of course, a Revolutionary War historian. You know a thing or two well, about this debate. Well, I do, I do know what happens. Uh, so eventually uh, it all really comes to a head and, and, uh, and a confrontation, basically, that gets resolved in a meeting with Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington. Right. But they basically came to the agreement that I mean, Alexander Hamilton was a proponent of federal power, and he wanted to take on these debts because that would mean that they would have a certain amount of control over the states. So they came up with this compromise. Compromise, uh, where the states would take the debt, but the center of government would move to a southern state, basically where Washington, Washington D.C. would symbolically be in the south. And this was, you know, an acceptable solution for Jefferson, a Virginian, who wanted at least something for his end, because, you know, many of the southern states hadn't lost so much or incurred so much debt. So if this new national government was going to incur this enormous debt... Well, both sides had to be happy. So the government is leaving New York in April of 1790. It's taking off and moving to its temporary home in Philadelphia, where it would stay before moving on to D.C., while D.C. was being built. However, the financial markets would stay in New York. Now, why would they stay in New York? Well, as we said, it was already turning into the busiest port in the nation, but also because William Dewar was the assistant secretary of the Treasury, under Hamilton, and he was staying firm in New York. Many of the financial institutions that had developed around the national seat of the government were still in New York City. So you so basically couldn't pay them to leave. They didn't <laughs> the, want to leave the town. Department of the Treasury. Gotcha. <laughs> and you know, this William Dewar was actually living in Washington's old house, or the house that Washington would live in when he was in New York City. Oh, over on Cherry Street. So as you mentioned, the national government had agreed to assume all of these states' debts. Well, to finance this, Washington pushes through Congress the Funding Act of 1790, in which the war debts would be exchanged for U.S. Treasury bonds, right? Hmm, okay, I'm following. So, so bonds are issued, three different kinds were sold and at different rates, and we won't go into that. But people were a little unsure what to make of them because the new government didn't really have much credit. 
And, you know, if the government failed and couldn't repay these debts, people would lose a lot of money. So people were taking a risk on those new treasury bonds. And then in 1791, the Bank of the United States uh, was created and capitalized for $10 million, and they issued BUSs, or B- B- Bank of the United States bonds. Bonds. Okay, so they had their own bonds. So they had their own bonds, and then the national government was also issuing bonds to pay off the war debt. So there were a lot of new bonds that the government was selling. You know, one side effect of this that was good for the new government was that it actually encouraged all Americans to support the new government because it was incurring all of their debts. So people had a vested interest. Americans had a vested interest. To buy back into it. Right. And to hope that the government actually succeeded because if it would fail, what would happen to their debts? And, you know, also what would happen to their investments as they started buying these securities? And it wasn't just the U.S. investors. As I said, there were investors in Paris and Amsterdam and Genoa, all over Europe, who were buying up these security bonds. But they also were looking for somebody who could be a representative or a buyer for them in New York City. You know, it was hard for them to do that kind of trading from so far away. Well, having a, having a real representative who is an American and like close to the scene, I guess. So, I mean, who did they, who did they choose then? Well, our dear friend William. Dewar, who was the former assistant at this point, started getting into the speculative trade. And so he started representing many of these different brokerage houses from overseas. Now, the nickname for speculation in government bonds was called scripts. Script. Right. Without a T, like not a script. Right. No, script. Scripts. Scripts. So scriptomania or something. Right. Okay. So there was a script. Actually, scriptomania. You get a T on the mania. <laughs> okay. There was scriptomania, scriptophobia, and and scriponomy. Well, this these, is, were, these are various different kinds of uh, script-related afflictions that right. one, as a financial advisor, could get could a, fall prey to. Right. Okay. And these were terms, right, that the conservative newspapers were coining to blast. You know, these speculators who were coming in and they were hoping to make a lot of money by turning these uh, government-backed securities around very quickly, buying them at a certain price and then selling them, selling them even before they had to pay for them, because this was a little trick they did back then. Often, when you bought a bond or a security, you wouldn't receive it or have to pay for it for 60 days until after you'd committed to buy it. So you could actually use the profits of the bond that you sold to buy the bond you just sold. You could <laughs> you could do what a lot, right, a lot of people did, which was buy things that they didn't have money for and then try to sell it again before they paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> at a profit. And so this was obviously driving prices up, up, up higher. And this was the scriptomania that was just taking New York by storm. <laughs> Dewar himself actually formed the first American securities pool by getting a bunch of different investors together. They called it the 6% Club. They were pooling their money together, buying a bunch of securities, and they agreed at the beginning that on December 31st, 1792, they were going to cash out. These things were starting to happen. Yeah, this sounds like we're entering a territory that may not be quite so ethical for an assistant of the treasury to be getting involved in. He left that position, but he certainly had connections and insider information. Hamilton was excited by this, his former boss, because the values were going up, and that meant that basically the value of the U.S. government was increasing, Mm -hmm. and that our position on the world marketplace 
Price was also becoming more attractive. However, he was afraid of something that could be, of course, a calamity. He was afraid of like a quick sell-off and a giant devaluation of the U.S. government. Now, knowing so many different crashes that have happened throughout our history, um, I guess maybe he didn't really see this coming. I think he knew that it was a possibility. He, he in fact, wrote to Dewar and asked him to be more conservative. And Dewar said, uh, thanks, but I have a meeting with my 6% club. <laughs> and so I'm guessing things got worse. Well, it did get bad because Dewar was actually playing both sides of the equation. He kind of he was investing in the buyers and the sellers and trying to kind of control each other's actions. He started believing his own hype. He overbought on some bank stocks, expecting before he'd have to pay for them that their value would increase to a certain extent. But in the meantime, what happened is a bunch of people tried to sell, the value tumbled, and he was out of a lot of money. At the same time that he made this really bad play, he was informed by the U.S. government that he owed them $250,000 through mismanagement that I think he had somehow acquired while he was the assistant treasurer. Wow, this so it's basically his gambling debt in, in so many words. And like it happened to so many other gamblers at the time, our dear friend Dewar, when he couldn't repay all that he owed, he was hauled off on March 22nd to debtor's prison. And there he remained, I hate to say it, until May 7th, 1799, when he died. The same week that he was hauled off, March 22nd, Wall Street experienced its first panic because brokerage houses were filled with people trying to sell and no one trying to buy. Hamilton had to finally calm the markets. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Yeah, okay. Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, had to calm the markets by throwing the U.S. Treasury into the marketplace, backing up the U.S. government stocks and bonds, and stabilizing the economy. So uh, a virtual bailout. In modern a, terms. It was a bailout, Greg. <laughs> and where's Bernanke in all this? In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham... Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. 
So what's going on on the ground here? What's I mean, what's the day to day on the streets? Because now these bonds are happening. Where where are they happening? Where are they being sold? Is it an organized system? Well, no, it it wasn't organized. That's the funny part. They were sold really at the beginning as a side business. You know, many people who sold them were bankers, they were lottery ticket vendors, they were other kinds of merchants, and they were selling these as a sort of, like they'd be selling newspapers or something. It was a piece of paper that had a value, and if they thought that the value that you were approaching them with, the, the price, was a fair one, then they'd sell it to you. Well, by 1791, they, they realized that they needed a dedicated place for selling and buying these stocks and bonds because there were now so many new stocks and bonds on the market, especially all these government ones we're talking about. So most of these vendors moved to the sidewalks of Wall Street. Okay, so just along the edge as, as horses and carriages are, are going by, as other people are doing their business, right. there's almost like they're like boot blacks or something, just on the side there selling their stocks and bonds. And just hanging out. And that worked brilliantly, you know, for the summer and fall of 1791. Uh, but when it got cold, these guys didn't want to stay around on the sidewalk, so they no. moved inside to different taverns, canteens, coffee shops. Well, a lot stuff. of... Uh, official business would get done in taverns that was perfectly natural no one thought it different to do official political business say with a frothy mug in hand no in fact it was a jovial environment but there were obviously drawbacks to this arrangement because there were so many different people getting into this market so many different taverns that people were meeting in to buy and sell that if you needed to make a quick buy or a quick sell you didn't really know where your buyer or seller was. You could be in the wrong tavern. Well, wild and wildly unregulated. I mean, it, it, you know, <laughs> <Goes> there's that <without laughs> saying. So they needed an auction because other commodity markets had auctions. So they should as well. So several different auction houses started having auctions every afternoon. Well, this was a nice change in a way because the auctioneers, you know, could at least have an organized approach to selling off these different stocks and bonds. But you still had the same problem of having too many auctions happening at the same time. And the auctioneers were actually having more power, I mean, over, over the brokers. Because they took a commission. They, they were kind of part of a, an auctioneer's guild, so they were lobbying to raise their commissions higher and higher and take a bigger piece of the pie. And so if you were a broker, I mean, what you wanted to do is just cut them out of the system. You didn't, you know, you needed to connect to other brokers, and, except they were standing in the middle. So in March of 1792, at 22 Wall Street a sort of early version of a stock market opens with just a couple brokerage houses coming together, standardize the auction process, cut out the auctioneers and their commissions, and consolidate the entire endeavor. And this was a very small version of what we, right. we would see here in a few minutes. Just a three or four different brokers who actually would come into play with the creation of the New York Stock Exchange. But this really wasn't enough because this was this was just a small faction. The entire industry needed to be revitalized and redone. So I like this, that the, the brokers all had, a, every account that I read about it, they called it a secret meeting. Oh. They met at this place called the Corey's Hotel, C-O-R-R. R-E hotel, and that's when they decided that they needed to get a plan together where they could cut the auctioneers out completely. And so they did that a month and a half later in something that's very famous and one of the most important moments of the American financial era, and that would be the signing of the Buttonwood Agreement. It would be signed in an area outside of 68 Wall Street on May 17, 1792. Now, why did they call it the Buttonwood Agreement? Why? Because it was, it's named after a 
buttonwood tree in which they all sat and they signed the agreement on. And you know, buttonwood tree. Yeah, I was going a, to ask. I, I, do it, you have a photo or anything? It's like a. Think, yeah. Don't worry. It's another name for a sycamore tree. Ah, oh, thank you. Now, this is essentially the Declaration of Independence for American financial matters. In fact, they even called themselves the founding and subsequent fathers. There's, there were 24 leading stockbrokers who signed it. There's a, I had this list right here if you want to flip through them. But um, a, lot of, um, a lot of famous names, you'll see a couple of bleakers on there um, who are related to the, the family who, of course, gave us the name of Bleecker Street. Interestingly, there are a few Jewish businessmen on there, including one by the name of Ephraim Hart, who was a Jewish merchant from Bavaria and was a member of one of the oldest synagogues in Manhattan. There was also a man named Benjamin Seisha, who owned a huge townhouse right around the corner and was known in town for his several beautiful daughters. <laughs> it, it was hard to find good anecdotes for these people, so those are my two <laughs> anecdotes. <laughs> no, I appreciate your effort. Thank you. Great. So they all signed it, but w- what does the agreement say? Well, it's really simple. As a matter of fact, it's been praised for its incredible simplicity. In fact, it's two or three sentences. Two sentences, Give I believe. Give us $700 billion. Um, it's, it's just a few basic points. It basically gets rid of the auctioneers, cuts them out entirely, and they decide that they're all going to basically work with each other, these 24 men. And so... You know, any other stocks that wanted to go through here, they would have they would have to work through these men. Right. So they would need a meeting place now. So the first official stock market was actually a coffee house called the Tontine Coffee House, and it was built between 1792 and 94. So in fact, though it was a coffee house, it was always built for business, but there was some pleasure there as well. I'm sure. So they did serve coffee, though. I mean, oh yes, they did. As a matter of fact, um, one according to an 1897 history of New York. They quoted uh, quoted as saying it was a place for a merchant to go and enjoy a cup of prime old coffee without walking to their distant home on State Street, Bowling Green, and the lower part of Greenwich Street. You know, those distant. You don't right. have to walk that I far. I can't even imagine. You can get a cup of coffee and you can do your transaction there. And we know that the coffee beans were fresh, too. R- like right off the boat. Now, the Tontine Coffee House, by the way, you know where the name Tontine get- comes from? Well, the ha- coffee house was built under a Tontine arrangement. Do you know what Excuse- that is? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here smiling, learning so well, much. It's, yes. Okay, the Tontine arrangement was named after a man named Lorenzo de Tonti, who was a Neapolitan banker. He developed this thing called the Tontine Scheme. It's sort of basically a formative early version of insurance. It's like this, Tom. You get a big group of people together to throw a bunch of money into a fund, that fund which they would call the tontine. Now, each time a person died, that money from that person would be cut up and then given to all the other people until at the very end, one person would have all the money. I think I saw an Agatha Christie play like this. It does sound like a recipe for murder. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it was banned in many countries for that very reason. Yeah, I can't imagine why you banned this. But But it was legal in the U.S.? It was legal, and the Tontine Coffee House was a a Tontine scheme with the the people who signed the Buttonwood Agreement. Wouldn't you be afraid that someone's going to slip something into your coffee? Well, not proper gentlemen just would never have thought that. So well, their wives might. Now they stayed at the Tontine until 1817. Uh, one quote from the the president of the stock market. I can't remember what, what year this was, but I just liked the description of what it might have looked like in the Tontine. It's filled with underwriters, brokers, merchants, traders, and politicians selling, purchasing, trafficking, or insuring. Some reading, others eagerly inquiring the news. Everything was in motion. All was life. 
bustle and activity. Wow. Can you imagine it? I mean, that's... Uh, it's, that's oh. theater. <laughs> it became, obviously, a place for a popular place for all kinds of business, including government business and all socializing from all major players. Unfortunately, you know, we can't forget this. What's one real bet mark on this whole system was that one of the commodities that happened to be, you know, traded, bought and sold would be slave market. Right. Even though even though slavery was banned in New York in 1788, it wasn't banned in the state until 1827. But the trade could still happen in New York City. They were working in stocks that inevitably were connected to slavery. So, you know, it certainly had its hand. It's certainly not a pristine picture that we're painting here. Now, in March 8th, 1817, they finally gave themselves a new name, the New York Stock and Exchange Board. At this time, they expanded their constitution, and they had a whole new rules of conduct that they created that they actually modeled after a successful example of the stock market in Philadelphia. Around this time, they also got a second meeting place. They moved out of the Tontine and into a place at 40 Wall Street, Now, which they rented, by the way, for $200 a month. Big money back then. I should mention at this time that in 1824, a company by the name of the New York Gaslight Company signed on as, an, as a listed company and would be the, and is still listed with us today under the new name Con Edison. <gasps> Now, unfortunately for this new little headquarters, along came the Great Fire of 1835. Now, that fire wiped out everything downtown. 700 buildings were burned to the ground. The 400 Wall Street was wiped out. Amazingly, the Tontine was spared. Uh, so could they move back in? No, because they, the Tontine actually got, ended up getting knocked down and then a building was replaced for that in 1855. They did not move back to the Tontine. I think, I think by this point, the stock exchange was just maybe a little bit too big now. For right. the Tontine. So for the next several years, they would just go through a variety of different buildings. They were in horse stables. They were in attics. Um, just various buildings up and down uh, downtown Manhattan just to accommodate them. They didn't really have... Uh, home and so during this whole period of course i'm glossing over all the different things that happened financially in the city in the united states they're riding the waves up and down of the market all these all these different panics you know some of them were re resolved by the federal government at great cost although for instance the panic of 1837 the president, Martin Van Buren, was criticized for not intervening. Maybe something to remember in today's topsy-turvy world. Topsy world. Another panic occurred 20 years later, the Panic of 1857, which was basically domino effect of all these different bank failures, starting with this massive embezzlement scheme of the New York branch of a, of a bank called the Ohio Life Insurance and Trust Company. This basically kept the city and America into a recession all the way up into the Civil War. On a lighter note, however, please, the telegraph was invented in 1844 and by 1850 could be used to transmit prices and... And would allow people to make transatlantic purchases too. Well, 1863, the transatlantic cable was oh. laid and then 1867, they got their first stock ticker. All of these would help increase the ways and the methods in which they could communicate prices to people outside of the city and this would really help them begin to get the reputation as a international center of finance as well. 
Strangely enough, what actually ended up helping our stock market a lot was the Civil War. The stock market during the Civil War was definitely up and down, basically depending on the battles and what the Union lost or the Union won or whatever. But eventually it did have a huge boom effect on the stock market, although when Abraham Lincoln was shot, they closed it down for an entire week. But this 1863 was a, is a very significant year for two very important reasons. The, for the first reason is that they shortened their name finally to what we know it today, the New York Stock Exchange. And secondly, that it would take a new home built just two blocks west of the original site from 1792 and just next to what is today's stock market. Well, it's all, I mean, it's it's Wall Street. Everything's like pretty much within spitting distance of each other anyway. The so. 1863 building was designed by architect John Kellum. Now, Kellum had a fondness for cast iron marble structures with <laughs> ornate designs and such. He had designed uh, the block-long A.T. Stewart department store up at Broadway and 10th. Mm-hmm. Street, and had also done Stewart's big mansion at 34th and 5th. In 1861, he would work on probably his most famous and one might say notorious building, the Tweed Courthouse. Oh, or my. The New York County Courthouse, which yeah. is located still today right behind City Hall. Yeah, you kind of look at that and you just, you, can, you can't really look at that building without just looking at all of the money that was wasted building. Not that it's not a beautiful building, it certainly is, but just because of all the scandals and corruptions that went into it. Right, and it was so expensive and went way over budget because of the Tweed Ring and because of Tammany Hall rackets that drove up the prices and laundered money throughout the whole process. Process. Which the stock market didn't like either. But Kellum designed um, in these turbulent times in the 1860s a new home for the stock market. But a group of brokerage firms came together and they hired Kellum. They bought the plot and they hired Kellum to build this Italian palazzo style building that was evidently quite beautiful. Well, they were in this building for a few decades and Writing out the the second half of the 19th century was, was certainly no easier than the first part of the 19th century. Just a few years later in 1869, there was a huge bust in gold speculation. 1873 brought a huge crash which closed Wall Street for 10 days, put a lot of money in the pocket of Jay Gould, and almost sank Cornelius Vanderbilt and his New York Central Railroad, which means we wouldn't have had the Grand Central Station. Ten years later, there was another panic, the Panic of 1884, and that one actually bankrupted our old friend Ulysses S. Grant. But after each of these panics, it should be added, there was a period of normalization. Well, but after 1884, there was a huge prosperity. The stock market started to really blossom. In 1886, they had their first one million share day. By the 1890s, it was a huge boom. Trading in listed stocks tripled between 1896 and 99, you know, there's so many things that are going into this. The, all the effects of the Gilded Age, the robber barons, all these railroad wars, right. dozens of multimillionaires throwing their money around, the introduction of these new industrial corporations into the stock market, things like tobacco and coal. And there's a general, a lot more interest at this time in, in international dabbling within the American market. On top of it, you have new technologies like the telephone, which was debuted in 1878 on the stock market floor. All of these factors come into a stock market that is exploding. They need another headquarters. So they decided to have a competition hosting the eight leading architecture firms in the city to build themselves a brand new stock market. And the winner, Tom, the winner is... Please, yes. And the Oscar goes to George Post. Now, George Post is one of New York's 
leading architects at this time. He's a little tragic, though, I have to say. It's a little tragic detour because he was one of the most prolific and influential architects in the city, particularly with the early development of the skyscraper. However, unusually, Tom, most of his buildings have been demolished. There's only very few. As a matter of fact, one I can think of right now at the top of my head, which you'll have to go visit. Do you know the Williamsburg Saving Bank? Of course. Not the tower, the Saving Bank. If you go across the Williamsburg Bridge uh, over to the Brooklyn side and you turn left, there's a really unusually ornate bank right there to the side. That and the Stock Exchange are two of the very few examples of his buildings that are still standing in New York. But back in the day, he like he built a, ma- a mansion for Vanderbilt. He built the Pulitzer Building. He built the Western Union Building. These were classic ex- examples of beautiful architecture. And so he built the new Stock Exchange Building. Correct. So in uh, May 1st, 1901, the old building was demolished. Several delays and a $4 million price tag later, the new one was built on April 22nd, 1903 to instant rapturous praise people loved this building you know because it's it's the era of the beaux-arts so of course they love it it's like it's very very classical it just looks like a museum piece or a temple or a mausoleum the key to post selection for this job was his design of the trading room floor at the time it was built it was one of the largest open spaces in the United States. Mm. It had marble walls that rose 72 feet in the air and had a beautiful skylight so the, so the light could come down and they, they could get natural light as they're screaming at each other. It actually incorporated air conditioning in its design. It had an in-house hospital to care for all those stressed-out traders, I guess. And the front of the building has these 95-foot windows. It's almost like a, a wall of window. And of course, you know, I mean, very recognizable, those six Corinthian columns, which today are covered by the flag. Now, I guess maybe the most famous feature is that marble tympanum above the columns, you know, that tympanum, <laughs> that basically that triangular frieze at the top of the... Uh, yes, of course. That was not designed by him. That was designed by another man by the name of John Quincy Adams Ward. So, I didn't know he had a ward. John Quincy Adams Ward, in fact, he did. By the way, if you're standing in front of the Stock Exchange, if you want to see Ward's best-known work, you just stand in front of the Stock Exchange and then turn right, because standing right there is George Washington, right in front of Federal Hall. Right. That's his statue that he also did. The statue above the Stock Exchange is called Integrity Protecting the Works of Man, and it's just this very beautiful frieze with an integrity, this goddess holding out her arms with all these nudes on the side. Very powerful, very beautiful marble sculpture. Unfortunately, after a couple decades, it was made of about 90 tons of marble, started to kind of weaken, oh, fall no. apart. They didn't really want people, you know, having pieces of marble falling on them. Pieces so, of integrity. Pieces of integrity. There are no integrity. I mean, what a symbol. So in 1936, they actually took it down and they put a lead replica up there. That's only weighs 10 tons. But the reviews of this building were absolutely positive. The Temple of Finance is what they called it. You know, Post was really able to create something that was very monumental and grounded, which was very important because the because of the business inside is sometimes a very, you know, elusive, very transitory. It's nice to have this very big, solid, grounded building. The building itself had all these different expansions throughout the century and would eventually even need more space. In 1922, they built a new office tower at 11 Broad Street 
Street, which they nicknamed the Garage. They actually built other trading floors in 1969, 1988, and 2000. But Tom, this is crazy. All of those trading floors have since been closed because of the increased popularity of electronic trading. Uh-huh. So there's actually less need for all these people to be shouting at each other. And But in fact... They still do it, and it absolutely a hoot to see if you can ever if you can ever get inside there and get a tour or have some reason to be in there. I I, I did it once a long time ago, and it just I blew my mind that these people were paid to do this. It was fantastic. Thank you very much for listening to our little abbreviated history of the New York stock market. We have an exciting announcement to tell you. We are doing our very first live event. In New York City. Believe it or not. In about three weeks. And we'd love for you to join us. So log on to BoweryBoysPodcast.com for more exact information about the time and place. And we'll also put it here on the podcast. But And we'll talk about it next week and give you some more information there. We'll also put the information on our Facebook page. So if you're on Facebook, just type in Bowery Boys. Join on as a fan and we'll have that information there as well. It'd be great to actually see you and meet you. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.